is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Welcome. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of September 2021. And in this very first show for the podcast, I'm delighted to announce that we're joined by Stephen Yu, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of the Blue Whale Growth Fund, a long-only global equity fund focusing on large-cap stocks in developed markets and one of the best-performing global equity funds over the past few years. Now, Stephen runs it out of London in the UK and has had an amazing focus on technological disruption. So through this interview, we'll be discussing not only some of the trends he's seen over the past couple of decades, but also his philosophy and approach to the changing world and some of the exciting things he sees ahead of us, told through the stories and stocks and companies he holds in the portfolio. Well, Stephen, great to uh, catch up and, and have you on this brand new podcast, Transitional Matters, uh, where we're looking at trends, megatrends and transitions around us. To start off, would you mind kind of just telling your story, telling the listeners a little bit about you, your career path and, and really how you came to set up and run the Blue Whale Growth Fund? Thank you, Chris, for the invitation. If some of you have followed my career, I started off back in early 2000. And the first point of my career was to work at Hargreaves Lansdowne, which some of you might be familiar with Peter Hargreaves, who is the co-founder of the Blue Well Capital with me a couple of years back. But I think the journey that I have gone through was quite interesting because I started off involving meeting with fund managers. We were running a fund of fund at the time. And I think that five years that I spent at Hargreaves Sandstone has really exposed me to different investment management style, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And since 2007, I was working with a UK fund manager who is now retired now, Tim Steer at New Star Asset Management and also Artemis based in London. And at the time, I was really a UK-centric manager, meeting with a lot of FTSE 100, 250 companies, etc. And I spent about probably six to seven years doing, I mean, focusing on the UK market. And that was a time back in 2007 until 2013, there was a period of time that UK companies were, was really good. I mean, that we had a lot of like commodities names like Real Tinto, BHP. We have some really good industrial companies. Uh, we have some other names that are domestically focused, that have done extremely well. We didn't have many tech companies at the time, which I'm sure we'll touch on in the UK space. But then since then, in 2014, I've joined a hedge fund called Nevsky Capital, working for Martin Taylor, and that was a global mandate. So I started off focusing on a lot of global companies, US companies, et cetera, et cetera. And in 2017, Peter and I, we decided to 
do something ourselves, and we launched this Do Well Growth Fund. We, we can touch on a bit later in September 2017. So we have about, I mean, we are just a four year in as of this month. And I think the interesting thing that I would talk about is why maybe maybe I'm just asking Chris question now, but maybe why I decided to do something on my own. I think it's very much linked to the investment philosophy that we want to invest into very high quality businesses and an attractive price. So valuation is extremely important. And at the same time, I think doing the fundamental research in-house, not relying on third-party research is equally important. And so if we were to do something ourselves, we can actually drive how the research is done and there are six of us in the investment team and we do all the research in-house and and hence a lot of things are original we go through the different source of information etc and that, that is one of the things that i feel quite strongly about that if we were to do well as a, a new fund in the market we need to deliver we need to deliver significant outperformance or offer that potential and how you do that i think one key driver would be to do your own research for a good standard. No, superb. So before we kind of delve into some of the things that you kind of, I don't know, see changing around us right now, because you you certainly focus a lot on technological disruption and kind of the, the digital age. Can we spend a minute just talking about what's changed already? I'm thinking about the things that you've seen kind of during your career, because it's it's been an incredible period of transformation. And you can go back further than your career if you want to. I mean, if you kind of think about this, that uh, it's not long ago, Google wasn't even a public company until 2004. Cloud computing, I don't know, was probably about 2006. And then Apple kind of came along and changed the smartphone world with its iPhone in, I think Steve Jobs got up on stage on 2007. But the point is the world's changed massively, hasn't it? And in your opinion, I kind of just want to get, what do you think some of the most significant changes and developments have been that the world's seen? I, I think, yeah, thank you, Chris. I think you have already outlined a few key drivers. But I think if you ask me to, I mean, just to be quite simplistic, to point out two uh, key drivers or changes, I think one definitely would be the penetration of internet access. So everyone now have very fast speed internet access compared to 20 years ago. I don't know if any of our audience here would have uh, remembered that we have this little modem that you have to dial in and, and the internet speed is really slow. It probably take you a few minutes to to, to go to a website and do anything, you probably take you an hour before you can actually check out. And I'm sure this podcast, which which would be readily available online, would not be possible because of the internet access or the penetration at the time. But we are talking about 20 years ago now. That is a very important drivers. But I think if you ask me to pinpoint one, which is really significant and it's only happened over the last 10 years or so, is the penetration of smartphone. In, started by Apple, Steve Jobs. I mean, that was the time that we have this smartphone, which is like a mini computer in your pocket. You can do so many things with this thing. I mean, you can speak to your friend, you can chat on WhatsApp, you can do social media, you can watch YouTube, you can Google, uh, you, can, you, can, you can do the Google search, you can check out, you can do so many things that was not possible before the Apple iPhone arrived in 2007. And obviously, at the time, you would say, oh, maybe the changes should be taking place 10 years ago, not recently. Of course, it's not possible. It's all about the same thing as the fast 
internet access, you need the penetration. So when the penetration was completed, at least in the developed market, so let's say US or UK, would be about 10 years later or maybe seven to eight years later, back in 2015, 16, which is only about five years ago. And by that time, what we're talking about here from a company's perspective is there's so much data consumption or the data that's readily available to be analyzed by companies such as your I mean how how you in, I mean how much time you spend on YouTube what you're watching how they recommend certain stuff for you to buy or to watch and all that stuff I mean it's only possible once those data in place and at the same time because of smartphone whether you're Apple user Samsung user or or, or Google phone user etc we are consuming ever more content and that's basically like an explosion of data content creation in the market. There's just so much content. And a lot of these content are being stored, which which come back to Chris' point, that is the cloud. Like you can't store the data on, I, I mean, if anyone still remember, on, on a hard disk, in your computer, in uh, maybe like a DVD, like a, like a diskette, whatever, like a super, like a hard disk. I mean, it's not possible if you are a company because you need to make it accessible by anyone. So you put it onto the cloud. So everyone can now stream uh, the Netflix program or watch a YouTube anywhere you want as long as you have the account, the, the subscription, and that got streamed directly from the server or the, the super uh, super data center or the cloud. So I think that is very interesting. But I think the, the key point really on the back of it is the penetration of internet access being really fast speed. At the same time, is the arrival of smartphone, which then take about took about ten years to get to get the uh, audience. Now, I want to come on to kind of some, something that which has grabbed my attention about about Blue Whale, and I, I think kind of this comes through. Kind of, I'm going to use the word philosophy, and I think it comes through quite strongly both in a lot of the stuff that you talked about with the process, your approach to the market, kind of reflects that philosophy. Uh, but I have a question. It's not really investment related, but there's a motto that you have, which I found and I love. But before I steal it and claim it as my own, I'm kind of fascinated where it comes from, how it's actually applied in, in kind of reality. Um, and that motto is, of course, the one which is uh, you, you say is excellence will be tolerated. C- can you kind of just give a, a, a kind of some background to that and how you apply it? Yeah, it's a funny one. So how Chris probably come across this motto is since we started Blue Well Capital about a few years ago, and obviously I mentioned that in some articles. And 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 how this come about was really funny. So I I'm originally from Hong Kong and I've been in the UK for over half of my life now. And that was a time when I was working at uh for Hargreaves Lansdowne in Bristol. I actually have participated in joining the reserve army in the UK. And I was attached to a parachute battery in Bristol 266. I recently, I, I think over the many years, they have merged with other, other, other battery already. But at the time, it was the model for the parachute battery. And obviously, in the, in the army, as you can imagine, that is all about being excellent in what you do. You need to do it quick. The whatever you 
the strategy that you come up with, it needs to be excellent at the same time. Otherwise, you could be attacked or lo- lose out to the enemy, etc. And I think that motto, when I was quite young, I was probably about 26 at the time, 25. And I thought it's a really good motto. And it's exactly the same thing as what fund manager is trying to achieve in the market. The market that we operate in, which is the stock market or financial market, is a very competitive market. I mean, if you, I mean, if anyone doesn't know this, I mean, in the UK we have probably over two thousand funds available, and in terms of fund manager, you probably talk about few thousand fund managers just based in the UK, and then obviously in the US there are many more. There are many fund managers doing research constantly, trying to be smarter than your competitors. Otherwise, you will be underperforming the rest of the market. And the market in itself is not a black box. The market is made up by investors. So constantly, you need to be able to excel the excellence. And at the same time, the market evolve at the same time. So that what, what it means is something that worked for you in the past, you cannot just keep coming back to the same playbook. The market evolved, you need to evolve with that. And I think that motto, excellence being will be tolerated is the starting point. If you constantly remind yourself that motto, you should keep trying harder. Yeah. So that's kind of fundamental to what you what you do in your approach, I guess. Yes. And also the other point is uh, I was mentioning earlier about Bluewell Capital that we have a relatively younger team. So I'm in my early 40s. The rest of the team is in, in the early 30s. So the team is relatively young. And at the same time, we, I mean, if you don't know this, we started off four years ago with 25 million pounds seated by Peter Hargreaves. We have recently surpassed 1 billion pound within four years. But now obviously at the time, it's extremely difficult to start something from scratch, given that I already outlined about 2,000 funds in the market. Even within my sector, that in the global sector, there's about 300 to 400 funds. So why do you need another fund in the market, right? Like you can buy a lot of funds with very good track record, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we are try- really trying to disrupt the market, as in we think we can offer something different in addition that the performance could be much better. And I think having this motto really summarize what we're trying to achieve here. No, superb. Now, I understand from like other interviews you've done that you're often kind of, how do I put this? You, you can be often labeled as a tech fund. In fact, it seems that kind of once a year, some journalist comes out and attacks you saying that Stephen Yu is just another tech investor. Now, personally, I think you, you do a great job kind of defending yourself on this. But as we were talking just, just before kind of we started recording this show, I think this is one of the interesting points because we come at the market from very different angles. You're a bottom-up fundamental investor. I come at it from a kind of big trend perspective. But I think where we settle is that we kind of settle that saying that sectors perhaps aren't as relevant as they were years ago. Uh, And for me, I think actually we're going to see a change in kind of equity uh, analysis over the coming years that instead of it being analysis on, let's say, oil and gas industry, you're going to start pushing it through drivers of change lenses. So what I'm talking about is, let's just use Royal Dutch Shell as an example. The analysts might start thinking, okay, well, how does climate change affect this company? How does demographics change this company? So I know that you kind of, unfortunately, sometimes get labeled as a tech fund. As I said, I think you do a great job defending your your, your fund and your approach it isn't just tech. 
But could you talk a little bit about the kind of the philosophy of the fund and that approach and, and why I, I think I'm right in saying you disagree with the label of simply just being tech? Yeah, thank, thank you for that. So the investment philosophy is very simple, that we want to invest into very high quality businesses at an attractive valuation. So that is as simple as that. It's an open-ended philosophy, as in we can invest into any companies that would fit this philosophy. And if I look back four years ago, when we first started, we started with a clean, uh, a blank piece of paper. And I also outlined at the beginning that I a lot of my previous experience that I was focusing on the UK or European market. And obviously in the UK slash the Europe, European market, then there aren't many tech companies, right, at the time. And obviously that was the time that those companies have done well. I mean, that was the opportunity in China. China need the technology for auto, for industrial, for commodities, et cetera, et cetera. If you were such a company at the time that you ended up exporting a lot of your product to China when they needed, they didn't have their own technology. That was the time to invest into those companies. But of course, China is pretty smart, as you can imagine. Any 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 country that have that are very ambitious, they then develop their own technology. So now, if you are still exporting to China, either you have some sort of superior technology that they still haven't caught up with, or you will be competing on price because they would be able to manufacture certain product at a lower price. So basically what I'm saying is like, historically in my previous career, I wouldn't have invested in Amazon or Google and Facebook, et cetera. But then what have changed since then when, when we started the fund four years ago, and I already outlined that the opportunity now sit in the cloud, in data, content, uh, creation, et cetera, et cetera, and also digital payment, which I'm sure a lot of people would be familiar with through the COVID period uh, since last year, is that a lot of these things have become your everyday life interaction. Like I was just saying to Chris earlier that, in I mean, i just give you one simple example. I mean, is Google a media company? which touch on many parts of our life, or is that a tech company? Obviously, I mean, if you, you refer to the traditional definition, which is under GICS, Google could be a tech company. And, and many years ago, when Google started, about 20 years ago now, it was a massive tech company because at the time, no one has embraced such a technology. It's similar to your, I mean, to your, to the to the auto space like i'm sure like 100 years ago when when ford came out with the first automobile i mean it was a tech company because everyone was on on, on riding on the back of a horse but then now i mean would you call auto company like an industrial company or would you call that a tech company it's definitely not a tech company anymore because it just becomes so embedded in your everyday life and the example i want to use on google is a bit like your yellow pages like what do you do what would you have done like maybe 20 maybe 30 years ago when you have to look out for like a new restaurant maybe to find a plumber to fix certain stuff i mean you go to the yellow pages right like but now you go to google you're keen, what is, where's the best restaurant near me? And then you have the Google map. Like, I don't actually know if anyone doesn't use Google map outside of maybe the US or China. Like you just cannot operate without Google map. I mean, is Google map now become your de facto 
like a printed map in the past when you were driving, like you would have this massive piece of like A3 map that you have to keep referring to. Now you have the GPS, which is built on the Google technology and all the stuff. So basically what I'm trying to kind of counter argue uh, this point is like, yes, they are powered by technology. I mean, Google is powered by technology. They have a lot of smart individual trying to make sure that the, the Google search would remain very relevant, that you're going to search for certain stuff that's going to give you the right answer rather than give you something else that's irrelevant. And, and that is, you need technology to do that. At the same time, the accuracy of certain stuff that they do, like maybe driverless car, which is they, I mean, they have the Waymo under, under a subsidiary. I mean, that is powered by technology, but at some point, once this driver's car maybe 10 to 20 years later become like a like like a de facto uh, way of traveling i think people wouldn't be saying that is technology anymore it just become your everyday life so i think it's important to recognize what is technology i think there are many technology names that are out there that's still trying to established they could become our everyday life but then the probability of the success rate for that is low Low means it's similar to Google. I mean, some people might not know this. Like Google started in 2004 or, or maybe early 2000, some, somewhere around that line. There were already seven search engines before Google started. And some of you might not remember this. I mean, we had Yahoo, we have Alta Vista, we have a few others. Those companies started before Google. And where are these companies now? They're all dead. They disappear, right? Even Yahoo now is using, I think it's Bank, uh, Microsoft search technology. They don't have their own search algorithm anymore. And Google is has become the market leader, has become the time, the place that you spend a lot of time uh, Googling stuff. I mean, Googling as in the term. Yeah, you, I, it's, you even, know, it's even yeah, owns, exactly. owns the process. You know, the, the name, yeah, you Google something, just like in the UK, we would say we hoover something. So yeah, you know, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Now, in a, in a recent article, you talk about kind of, I want to come on to like trends and transitions and things like that now. And in a recent article, I picked up that you, you kind of really hammered home the importance of like the current generational shift, as well as like the significance of digital transformation, cloud-based architecture, digital payment technology. I think you also listed things like AI-enabled automation. Now, I just really want to get your view. Why are these things so important to understand and where do they take us as a society, perhaps? Yeah, I think this is a very good one. And and, and if I give, give, give our audience a bit of like a back, background, is obviously, I mean, Amazon have been around for years before COVID. We experienced COVID in 2020. And in some parts of the population, like even UK, like people would already be ordering stuff from Amazon, would already be a prime member doing a bit of shopping here and there. But because the availability of or, or the the options that you can actually also get the stuff from the likes of Sainsbury, Tesco, that you can physically be present to buy the certain stuff that you want to do it, the penetration is not that high. Or maybe the transition from offline to online has been very slow. So you would have probably people who are relatively young. They just want to sit at home and have their grocery delivered to their door. I don't want to spend the Saturday morning going to Sainsbury and, and still have to queue up and compete with other people who are spending a lot of time there. You you have this group of people. And hence, the the if you're looking at the US data, online shopping, even as of today, 
is about 10 to 20 percent of of the overall spend by consumers the other 80 percent people were still very happy to go to drive directly to a Walmart to do their own shopping. And I would, I mean, the number would be a bit high in the UK because I think UK is very technology savvy in general. So the number would be higher, but it's not 100%, right? Uh, still. But I think what what COVID, the period that we experienced, which is quite painful, and, and, and I think it's caught a lot of people by surprise, is, is actually facilitated the transition a lot more and i mean this time last year i mean we have like a massive lockdown in the uk and no store is allowed to open like you can't even get anything you can't walk into a sensory to do your shopping basket so what are you going to do you probably have never done this before but there's no other choices and you are forced then to maybe for the first time to say oh maybe i can do my shopping on amazon's website and then you go there and then you do your shopping, you get it delivered. And I think it surprised many people the easiness and the quality of that process, the how quickly you get your product. And it's probably not so different than you have to pick your own fruit. I think a lot of people argue that you have to pick your own fresh fruit in a supermarket. But but I think the experience would have taught these people that actually it's not that different, but it saves you a lot of time. Is actually very good, and I think certain certain part of the population who didn't use to embrace this online shopping is now becoming part of their everyday life. They just like it. Like I can spend more time at home with my kids, and then you have your goods, your product deliver on a Saturday morning, whatever times that you want to pick the slots. And I think that is only possible on the back of COVID. So whether you you would call it is an unfortunate period in the human history, which it is definitely in terms of the course of human lives. But then on the back of that, you do have some positive that the adoption of some of this technologically driven way of living, that people actually like it, people enjoy it, is good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, that's a really interesting point that you talk about there, Stephen, is, is kind of, you know, from my view, and certainly something that kind of I've, I've put in the, the book that I'm currently writing is, is just looking at, I, I think, a phrase which I keep hearing about COVID, or certainly was in the early part, people saying, oh, COVID has changed the world. And in one regard, I would agree with them. In another regard, actually, when you look at what's happened, it's just fast forwarded things, that nearly all the trends that were in play pre-COVID are still in play today. You know, you take an aging demographic, you take increasing debt, you take climate change as a key agenda for many political parties. And you then talk about these things we've just been talking about, things like digital transformation. And all those trends have been in play for, for decades. COVID just simply sped it up. I, For me, from my point of view, what's coming next, though, is kind of uh, a change of direction. Like, I'm going to actually label this radical social change. And I want to touch on one of the companies which I think kind of you have recently added to the fund. I think it's NVIDIA. And I, I just kind of be interested to get your view on, on why you've added it there. I know that they're kind of a company really helping the acceleration and perhaps the evolution of artificial intelligence, kind of augmented reality, edge computing. I've thrown a lot of terms there. I'd like kind of to get your view of what that means and, and kind of outlined some of the changes that perhaps you see coming in that space. 
in terms of like kind of the, the NVIDIA story, I guess, and what makes an exciting investment? Yep, thank you for that. Happy to touch on NVIDIA. So NVIDIA is a new top 10 holding in the fund quite recently. So hence the thesis is still very fresh uh, on that note. And I think the simple answer to that is we we are not interested in NVIDIA because of the crypto mining, which historically have been used, the graphic chips have been used to do mine crypto, Bitcoin. We're not interested in NVIDIA because of the chips shortage, which everyone is talking about now. (laughs) And also... And and also the gaming space, which is historically the graphic chips produced by NVIDIA would be used in a lot of gaming devices, the high-end computers, etc. I think what really interests us is what is going to happen going forward from here in the next five to ten years. And Chris, you already mentioned about artificial intelligence, etc. Okay, let's take take our audience like a, a step back to how why NVIDIA was in all those industries like crypto, mining, etc. is because that typically when you have a CPU, which is manufactured by Intel and AMD, which you would have that, uh, you have one CPU in every single PC or your laptop. These chips are designed for general purpose computing and CPU is not very robust or efficient when you have like a specific task, such as like gaming, the 3D graphics, or, or like mining crypto, which is subject to certain algorithm that you have to keep running. So CPU is very general purpose. So if you use CPU to mine crypto, Bitcoin, you can do that too. But it's probably going to take you multiple times. Like you might take you a few hours more than if you were using NVIDIA's graphic card, which is very suited to, to do a specific task. So what is happening now? As I outlined earlier, there's always a time for everything. NVIDIA has been around for years. I mean, it's been around for the last 20 years. I mean, it's not a new company. What they're doing is not new. But the applications that they are going into now, that is new. And why is that possible now? It's because all the data that has been generated by consumers, like you would probably have an Alexa at home, you probably would have like a Google Home at home. Like if you even go to Google search, you go to YouTube, like you have watched certain program, you will see a recommendation at the top. Oh, maybe you would be interested in this. How is that recommendation come about, which is personalized to you? How many people do we have in the world who have some sort of access to YouTube would be in billions. I mean, that is an insane number. You are talking about like a personalized recommendation to billions of people in the world constantly, as long as you have some sort of access to the internet. And that recommendation is a very unique task, which CPU is not able to do that on a real-time basis. I mean, you can use a CPU to do that. It might take multiple times. And obviously, by the time that you they recommend certain things to you, you have already surpassed that interest. I mean, you want to be recommended at the time that you really have that interest, right? So, so, so NVIDIA discovered that that chip, the graphic chips, which is only produced by them, no other competitors in a similar extent, could capture these opportunities. And that opportunity have just started. And you can imagine the more data we create, whether it's through more data consumption or at some point maybe 
driverless car coming in with all this data like different car have to interact with the traffic light with people on the street etc i mean all this data need to be analyzed so artificial intelligence is just another way to to think about how data should be analyzed like should the data be analyzed intelligently just by computing learning about different trends and then at the same time 5g when 5g arrived i, I mean it's already started but it's not penetrated well penetrated yet, but five years from today, 5G would be well penetrated in the developed market. And we would have all this internet of things that would have a lot of data that need to be analyzed, to be interacted. And NVIDIA, the chips that they produce, is at the heart of this. And I think that is the opportunities that we feel really excited about. Yeah, I, I when I went on to kind of look at their kind of their their research and their website, I mean, you you really see just how many spheres of life yeah that they're, they're touching in in some way, you know. I think in and on the website they're listing actually like over twenty research areas and there's some fascinating applications. I, I think it was used in in developing some of the COVID vaccines, the AI stuff on the kind of uh, Nvidia chip. I think there was a South Korean company, uh, Lunit or something, that was using um, this kind of AI technology to help medical practitioners quickly screen patients with COVID-19 to detect those most at risk from pneumonia within seconds. Perhaps we we just quickly touched on something there, which I want to come back to, actually. Perhaps we can use this as like a perfect segue to kind of talk about those some of those things you see happening in the progression towards like 5G. I mean, eventually we're going to get to 6G. That's a long way off. But how do you see those technologies kind of disrupting business? Because, I mean, that's the other side. We've been talking an awful lot about the benefits, but there's going to be disruption too. And uh, I think you also mentioned uh, one of Google's kind of uh, sub-companies that that they kind of see 5G as the accelerator and enabler of the driverless car. I think NVIDIA actually say that 5G is, is the catalyst to the fourth industrial revolution. So yeah, I'd just be interested to get your view on kind of what does 5G actually enable us to do that, that 4G doesn't and, and where does it take us? We don't need to go into the tech, technicals behind like 5G versus 4G or 3G, but I think everyone who have been exposed to 4G, if not 5G recently compared to the 2G or 3G before, it's just like faster access to the stuff you need on a mobile basis. Like you don't need to sit in front of your computer to be connected to like some sort of like a fiber. The speed is equally as competitive. Like you can we can we can do this podcast if I'm I'm sitting somewhere with some sort of mobile access but on a 4G or 5G uh, with a 4G or 5G connection. And so I think the the speed is one of the things. But then secondly it's all about the data that can be collected or consumed. And and 5G obviously is a massive step up from 4G that that would be a lot more interaction in terms of data. Like data can be readily analyzed in seconds rather like if you have a slower transmission in terms of data in minutes. And it's all those stuff that facilitate this. And i give you one example. I mean, there's so many applications in that that would be the potential opportunities but one thing is already happening is streaming streaming of games right and and obviously if you have a super fast computer at home connected to some sort of fiber cable because of cloud technology is really good that you can stream your games like play you can play any games you can watch netflix whatever the streaming live with no delay watching some live event 
at the same time as like maybe you're sitting in front of a TV. It's only possible with that connection. And 5G would allow you to do that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like you do not need to be at home. You can be sitting on a beach. You can be sitting and you can be anywhere. Hopefully, I mean, definitely with that connection, right? You can't be sitting in, I don't know, in a place that do not have the, the, no, the North internet Wales. connection. Yeah. Yeah, just take North Wales. There you go. <laughs> we struggled to sure, get four. Sure, maybe my example, but but basically, <laughs> like you can do that remotely. And just think about like we, you don't have to be at home, like to perform certain roles or to to assess certain stuff. I mean, that 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 is that would basically explode the number of opportunities that any companies who can take advantage of to to offer a new product to, to consumers. And, and that is huge. You're right. Yes, it, it's, it's the key to, it is as big as the smartphone era yeah, in time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a fascinating kind of change, isn't it? I mean, we, we are living at an incredible point in history, I think. And, and I think kind of well, the other thing that's kind of caught my eye on this is, is kind of where this takes you with augmented reality you know, kind of the blurring of, of lines between physical and virtual. Uh, you know, we've seen that happen quite a lot already. I think IKEA use it that you can view their furniture in, in different rooms or, you know, kind of they did that back in 2017, I think. And American Apparel also did like virtual, like try on our clothes. And, you know, what you're saying here is, is as that speeds up, those applications become more and more readily available. Another change, which I kind of want to kind of talk to you about, actually, is is kind of this, um, perhaps one of the things that was really sped up during COVID was this kind of idea of flexible working, re- remote working, which I guess 5G empowers as well to some degree. Now, you hold a couple of companies. I think you, you own a, a Trello, well, kind of the parent company is uh, Alsacin, is it? Yeah, and, and Microsoft, and they've obviously invested uh, an awful lot of money into uh, kind of software and technology that allows remote work, collaboration, improved workflow. However, I'm going to kind of bring two things together here. One of the things I, I kind of read is, is that you brought all your team back, which I find fascinating. So kind of, I guess, question one, number one is, do you feel that personally remote working doesn't work for you guys? And secondly, when we then look to like the Alsacin and Microsoft models, is it kind of that remote working that you see as kind of a, an area of revenue growth for them? Yeah, I just want to throw both of those at you, kind of the conflicting views. I, I, I kind of, I'm guessing, but I'd love to get your view. This is a very interesting question. It's probably one of the best questions I've, I've got over the last year or so. And, and basically, I will answer your second part question first, which is about whether work from home powered by the lights of Microsoft, Atlassian, Trello, etc., is here to stay, 100%. You would ho- already have seen that the, a lot of companies has already embraced certain like hybrid policy, whatever, whatever. And, and, and I think a lot of companies have become more confident that people can actually perform the same role at home, not in office, etc. And And definitely that is a key driver to the pricing increase that Microsoft have just recently announced. I don't know if you caught that. And they just recently announced that anyone who subscribed to Office 365, I mean, on a, on a corporate level, the prices would go up by 15 to 20%. This is not about inflation. It's about the stickiness that they know if you want your employee to have that option to work from home, you need to have some sort of remote access to the office to 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 work to to 
to Outlook, to Teams, etc., like different products, like rather than like you just have like a one version of this software in the office that you're forcing people to go back to use it. So that that is gone those days. Like people should be allowed to do what they uh, if as, as long as they can perform the role. I mean, they 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 do want the option to to be able to work from home or away from the office. I think the stance that we take as a company is in a very different context. So if we go back slightly to one of the question about excellence will be tolerated. I mean, we are a startup, like in, in total, we have about 12 people in the team. I mean, there's six of us in the investment team. And one thing that I've learned about the financial market is the market is extremely efficient. I mean, we are not a big company here, right? We don't have like few hundred people who, who can basically do a little bit of everything, but then without doing everything. And obviously you do have those kind of companies and, and I, I, I envy them that they could actually have maybe like a one job that's been done by five people. And obviously like everyone just, just do that 20% bit. But then we probably have one people doing 100% of that job here. But, but that's not the point. I think the point is how do you actually keep the team together to operate with the same wavelength without sacrificing the competitiveness. And I think one thing I don't know whether I, our audience will appreciate this is obviously anyone can operate independently. Let's say if an analyst is performing some sort of research, I'm sure that person would be more efficient to go through the annual reports, write up the research at home rather than to be in the office that you probably have spent like maybe one third of your time interactive with your, interacting with your colleague for no reason. But I think in our world, because the market is very efficient, the value adding bit is not about one single individual doing the research because otherwise then why do I need six people? I might as well just do it by myself sitting somewhere else. And the really the real value adding bit as an investment team is the debates, is the interaction, is the challenges that we we do as a team. And there's a lot of ad hoc conversation. We would be saying, oh, what do you think about NVIDIA doing this on the floor without organizing a formal meeting? Obviously, on a back of the, the lockdown last year that we had most people working from home. I mean, we still have one or two uh, in the office, including myself, but most people were at home at the time. And, of, and we had many conference call internally but then you would know or if anyone have 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 done this for for the last 18 months you would know the level of interaction people are not being as engaged the meeting is scheduled for an hour you probably have another meeting after an hour and there's no more talks or debates after that meeting you probably would be speaking to each other a week later or maybe a few days later that quality is pretty low so basically what I'm trying to say is the value adding bit is the ad hoc challenges, debate, you read something on your Bloomberg screen. Is that any implication for our company? Is that the opportunity? Then everyone speak on the floor, which we do not have to schedule a meeting. So I think different businesses have a different, have a different context. 
in our context, like if I mean, I I mentioned that I was in the reserve army. Can anyone actually work from home in the reserve army? You can't. If you're fighting a war, you have to be there, right? You can't expect a commander uh, sitting at home remotely controlling the people on in the field to say, okay, maybe this battery should be going there. I mean, you need to be in the field. So that I think there's certain jobs that working from home is probably value detracting, but there are many more jobs that. Uh, in other industry that yes, I think people could actually work from home. And obviously in the past, like you would have seen this trend before, um, before COVID started was about a customer service. If you manage to call up a bank or any service provider, you probably get redirected to some Asian countries and they have a massive call center there to try to service you. So that is not new. But I think what is new is there are many more roles which could be similar than you can actually do your job at home. But there will be certain industry that if you do that, it's going to be uh, costly to the value add. And and I think as far as my industry is concerned, it's about doing better than our competitors. Hopefully, we would with the, all the debates that we have real time, we will be able to recognize a mistake quicker than our competitors, or we would be able to spot a opportunity quicker than our competitor. That is the alpha. That is the outperformance. So you hold a lot of like finance related companies too. So I'm thinking here like Visa, MasterCard. I think you also hold PayPal, if I'm right. What are the the threats to these business models? Because we've been talking again a lot about the different trends, but there's one trend which kind of is being talked about a lot within finance. Uh, And we've seen a lot of chatter about central banks issuing their own digital currencies I think the Bank for International Settlements, BIS, came out with some research earlier this year saying that I think it was something like 85% of central banks are thinking about it. I think something ridiculous like 60% were actually working on it. But the the ongoing question is just how much harm this could do to traditional banking sector. In fact, you know, you often will hear that the decentralized system, we could see a model where the central bank digital currency completely replaces bank deposits, which is obviously their primary source of funding. Now, if and when we move away from traditional finance towards this kind of model, um, how do companies have to reinvent themselves? And secondly, kind of, do these companies you hold, do you think they're slightly more immune to this? And I guess the final question is, do you even think we are going to transition towards a a central bank digital currency? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I think firstly, we love disruptors. So a lot of our companies are disruptors themselves that to take share, to pay back, to benefit from, from a transition from uh, people who are doing things that are not very efficient and now they, are, they have a better experience, etc. So disrupt is something we like. But the other thing that is equally important is we constantly look out for disruptors who is going to disrupt the company that we have in the fund, such as what Chris just mentioned about Visa and MasterCard. There's so, we love the digital payment space, and there's so much stuff that's going on within this space, whether it's buy now, pay later, the crypto, the decentralized finance, the regulations, etc., etc. So I think that is not new news, as in like maybe a few years ago when we first started that we were talking about different level of disruption, but obviously... If that company is well established, if the management team is very on top, then they would be able to capture those opportunities either by 
investing into some of this company and make them become part of the company or part of the offering they they do to their customers etc that's what happened with mastercard and visa i mean they are actually they have a lot of investment in some of these fintech companies like i don't know if you saw that recently mastercard acquired company uh that does kind of uh money laundering checks in the crypto space and it's all that's kind of like stuff that Within even within that, you would have the subs, uh, kind of like disruptors that performing some sort of regulatory function, and 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 those companies, is very difficult for them to get the scale because how are you going? I mean, Visa and Mastercard together combined is close to a trillion dollar. I mean, not trillion dollar, but probably seven hundred billion dollar company. And 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 if you started with zero and you don't have any revenue stream, you can't get to that scale. But Having a partnership, or whether Visa or Mastercard is going to maybe acquire this company to make it available to all the other customers who are already uh, doing business with Master and Visa, that is how you kind of scale up a technology. And the other thing I'm sure our audience would know that uh, PayPal have recently, early this year, started with a crypto wallet so that you can now have Bitcoin in the wallet and make real-time purchases, converting your Bitcoin to to to, to cash, etc. So so basically, I think it's a very difficult difficult call because like we are evolving, the technology is evolving, the company that we have in the fund are evolving equally. So if you ask me, oh, do I think that these companies are going to be left behind? It's unlikely, but there's always a possibility that many companies that used to do really well, they have got left behind, right? Like Intel, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to go into specifics, but Intel was the market leader in CPU. And they refuse to go into what NVIDIA is doing now. And look at the market cap of Intel, which has been around for what, like 50 years or 40 years? NVIDIA is a much bigger company now than than Intel because Intel is still thinking, I, I want to come out with the latest CPU, which will be fitted on your PC at home, your laptop. But the world has changed. Like you need to have, have your... Your, your chips in data center to perform specific tasks, etc. So company does left behind. But as we where we sit, we stand here now, we we feel that these company are very on top. And I think last but not least, just on this note, it's really important. I think as far as the developed market is concerned, which is highly regulated in different across industry, you would have to expect that even yes, crypto is unregulated people can do whatever they want to do but to make something quite well penetrated when you say oh bitcoin will become the de facto currency that people would use that people no longer use whatever currency that we are using now it need to have some sort of regulation because the government central government central bank etc etc is not going to allow for that i mean you would already have seen some regulation coming through that if you have some sort of Bitcoin, whatever, and and if you are you are you are, you, are, you have the purchase, let's say through Coinbase or some regulated platform, I mean those information would be shared. As in, like if you make a lot of money on Bitcoin and you're not going to pay your taxes, I think the the, the inland revenue is going to come the after regulators you. Regulators soon be on exactly yeah exactly exactly. So so I think basically what I'm trying to say, yes, I think that's a great area now that yeah it seems like crypto is gaining some traction. 
under the radar. But then if you're talking about whether this would become the significant part of the financial market, whether the decentralized finance is going to be significant of the market, it needs to be regulated. And but then the other point which which you ask is about uh, a centralized uh, sorry the the central bank uh, bank currency. currency. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will happen. I think it's just another way for the government to have a better grip of where the money is. It would definitely happen. How how long it's going to take is probably going to be ten years. I'm guessing if not longer, but it will happen. It's just another way of the development. And and one thing I think people do not. People should not lose sight out of. To us, it's not about crypto, decentralized finance, etc. It's about the technology behind it. It's blockchain. Blockchain is the key of everything. Anyone who can embrace some sort of blockchain technology, that is the that is the internet for you in the next twenty years. At the moment, what is unfortunate about the industry is. The only place that you can get some sort of exposure to blockchain is through cryptocurrency. That is not the answer. Cryptocurrency is just one form of blockchain technology. Any company that can embrace some sort of blockchain technology, it would be equivalent to empowering the online world. Like you can do so much stuff. And and the other point that I want, I just want to make is like back in the early two, um, before the tech bubble bursting in, in, in 2000, there were so many companies that people would think, oh, is the infrastructure, is the telecom company, is the Vodafone, is the BP, sorry, BT, that, that, that power the internet, or maybe the internet browser, the Netscape, the internet explorer. Are these companies making any money? I mean, Netscape is bus. Cisco, who used to have all the infrastructure, is, is not doing that well. Who is making the money? Google search. YouTube, Netflix, Facebook, WhatsApp, like all these companies have not even existed at the time. But if you were like an investor at the time, like that's the only place for you to invest. And I think crypto is in a similar situation, but I think the potential, we have not even started that yet. So, so talking, maybe you can help me with something here, actually, because um, while we're on the kind of the topic of finance and the future of finance and the need for these companies to kind of keep kind of innovation and things like that, we see a lot of talk about non-fungible tokens, NFTs, which seem to be like all the trend. I mean, please do help me understand what's going on here, because from from my view, I saw somebody pay something like $1.3 million for essentially what looks like a 1990s clip art rock. I think even Visa got in on this, that they bought a kind of a, a, essentially an avatar of a woman with a green mohawk for $150,000. Is, is this kind of really an emerging category of finance, as Visa's Terry Angelo says? Or what's it all about? I think it's the same thing as the, what I just outlined, like NFT which is very popular now. I mean, there's a lot of crazy numbers going on, people spending a lot of money on, on certain stuff, which you, you probably scratch your head. Why would you do that? But it's powered by the same technology. It's the blockchain. It's the digital signature that you can get. And and it kind of authenticates certain stuff that in the past that you can't because like people have the Photoshop capability. You can just probably crop out certain pictures of photos or art form, whatever, and you can just replicate that. And, and you you probably in some other places, you can pretend that, oh, I've actually created this if people haven't known that it's actually created by other people. So I think in historically is only in the printed world even though in the printed world there's a lot of fake right like you can have some master artist trying to replicate certain arts that has been created before and say oh this is the genuine version but it's just 
in the digital world, like you can do anything historically. So what NFT has managed to do now is to make certain things basically having this stamp of uh, approval, like this is the real one. But so so I think my view is, I mean, it's very exciting about NFT at the moment, certain, certain places. I think even in the gaming world, you have certain character or maybe certain weapons, whatever that is, you have to pay a lot of money in terms of like you have to own that bit. And and I think that's like a second-hand market that you can keep beating up the prices, etc. But that is not the answer yet in terms of the potential. So NFT is just one of the many forms of what blockchain technology could achieve. Well, Stephen, I mean, you've been a great guest. I, I just have kind of one last question for you. From all the meetings and kind of companies that you speak to, because I know your team spend an awful lot of time talking to, researching every company that you hold. What's the one meeting or kind of R&D project that over the years has got you most excited and why? I think I have to, I mean, I already talked about this, is NVIDIA. And, and I think that is something that I'm, I mean, the team or myself are really excited about now. Because obviously, if you're talking about four years ago, I mean, we were very excited by Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon. I mean, we have a lot of names that have been with us for the last four years. So those names at the time, that was the opportunity. And at the time, obviously, Nvidia would have been around already. I mean, it was part of our investable universe, etc. But the timing was not right. So, so I think if you talk about a recent meeting as of like 2021, I think Nvidia would be one of those few places that we feel really, we can feel really excited about for the next three to five years. But then four, four years ago, we would be very excited by Microsoft. I mean, we are still excited by Microsoft, but it's just because I think the story is probably more well understood now. Anyone would be exposed to the Microsoft uh, Teams or Outlook or Office 365 SS, etc. And the management team has been exceptional. PayPal, we are still excited, but maybe the valuation is a, a, a bit more less undervalued and, and all the stuff. But four years ago, I mean, PayPal was like maybe 70, 80 billion dollar company. Now it's like 300 plus dollar company. So it's one of those things like, it's just like how you're going to see it over the next five years. And and I think where NVIDIA is exposed to is is, is those, it, it, it would be able to fulfill the opportunity set in the next three to five years without worrying. I mean, we haven't talked about like macro uncertainties, inflation, the COVID, the Delta variant, like different government have different policies on travel, international travel, etc. NVIDIA would not be impacted in any shape or form in terms of what they're going to achieve in the next few years. And that's what makes us excited. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. It's great to catch up with you. Uh, if listeners want to kind of find out more about you and what you do, where, where should they go? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Uh, if you're interested, please come to our website, uh, www uk. I mean, we also uh, do a monthly mail shot that if you're interested to follow up to, to follow on like what we do with the fund or different new ideas that we come into the fund then please sign up to our mail shot on our website you've been listening to transitional matters make sure to like subscribe and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk and we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions 
All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.